From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. With the eyes of the college baseball world trained squarely on Gainesville and the top 10 showdown taking place, the Gators delivered a knockout blow to Vanderbilt last weekend, sweeping the Commodores with relative ease and reminding the nation why they are a force to be reckoned with. On today's show, we'll gather FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators Sean Kelly for a roundtable chat discussing baseball's dominant performance, the work left to do for their NCAA resume, softball's unusual road to Oklahoma City, a heartbreaking finish for lacrosse, the end of the line for tennis, and athletes that didn't pan out as broadcasters in the PAT. Then, softball's SEC Player of the Year Skylar Wallace stops by to discuss her record-breaking season, trading in her crimson and white for orange and blue, and much more. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination, with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Time to open up our roundtable. We have FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, uh, to discuss a number of sports today, starting with baseball. Uh, guys, we talked about it last week, a huge series, maybe the biggest one of the year for Florida with Vanderbilt coming to town. Um, not only did Florida win the series, but they they really dominated, especially in that first game on Friday. Uh, and then as we talked about, guys, it's the ebbs and the flows after this past week, and now you're looking again at Florida and saying this is a team that, that you expect to go to Omaha and, and make a lot of noise if they can play the way they did against the Commodores. Yeah, Adam, I think that was, uh, you know, obviously the best series for the Gators uh, this season. Uh, you know, the thing that impressed me the most was really the pitching. Uh, you know, kind of what you're going to get a lot of times out of Brandon Sprode on Friday nights. Uh, Hurston Waldrop has kind of been up and down and then Jack Caglione really struggled recently uh, with his control. And, uh, you know, Caglione on Sunday turned in his best performance of the year with, what, six and two-third innings, nine strikeouts, only one walk. He entered the game averaging eight walks per nine innings. So for him to do that against Vanderbilt, you know, coming in at a, a top-ten team, that was impressive. And I think for the weekend, uh, I think it was 25 innings pitch for Florida. They gave up three runs, two of them earned. So, I mean – it was just one of those weekends that kind of been waiting on. I think uh, that's the kind of team that, you know, Florida has teased us with at times this season. And now, you know, Kevin O'Sullivan afterward certainly wanted to keep everything in perspective. It's only one series, one weekend, but it was a, a really good sign as they uh, enter the final three-game series at Kentucky this weekend. And then, of course, uh, go up to Hoover next week for the SCC tournament. And, uh if they, like I said, if they can continue to get that kind of pitching from their starters, the bullpen seems to have figured a few things out. And I think one thing we know about this team is 
they're going to hit the ball consistently. You know, some guys get hot when others go cold, but for the most part, uh, Kevin O'Sullivan has enough spare parts to keep that lineup kind of producing, and that's what we're seeing right now. There's so many ingredients that went into the great weekend. I mean, <laughs> it's interesting. We talked about how big the series was, and it turns out to be that way because at the end of the weekend, you're in first place in the East and have a chance to have one of those top two seeds at Hoover coming up in the SEC tournament. But, Scott, I'm with you. The pitching was certainly the headliner. Um, and Hurston Waldrop on Saturday pitched one inning, 10 pitches, but he looked as sharp as he has all year just in that very, very small sample size before an hour and 16-minute rain delay. And we learned that Ryan Slater is Ryan Slater, uh, you know, that we've come to know here as a reliable long reliever, impossible fourth starter now in this rotation. If you take Slater and Tejeda, who had started a bunch of the midweek games, you have to think that your starting rotation depth is probably in good shape when it comes to regional play. And I know we're kind of getting out over our skis here a little bit, but you know when you get into that regional situation or even at Hoover where if you were to drop into the loser's bracket, your rotation certainly has to expand and gets tested or exposed, whatever the case may be with regard to a particular team. So with with Walter Bowling going to one inning, we got the long relief from Ryan Slater. And it was really one of those first weekends we've seen in a long time where both the bullpen looked good and the starting rotation looked good. It was either one or the other at different points during the 55-game schedule, as it will turn out to be. The Gators will play one less than the max that's allowed in a regular season. So that was certainly of note. And obviously, Scott did a great job discussing Caglione, who – in that outing on Sunday, set a new career high for pitches in an outing. He tied his career high with those nine strikeouts. It was also his longest outing of the year as well. But even going back to Friday night, it was interesting. When Sproke got the ball, the Gators were on a string of, I think, six straight games where the starting pitcher had not gone longer than, I think, five and two-thirds. And so Sproke broke that string uh, with his performance on Friday night. Now, the other side of the ledger for Vanderbilt, it's sometimes it's about catching the team at the right time. Vanderbilt came in, had to scratch their Friday night starter, ended up scratching their Sunday starter as well. So, um, you know, you catch Vanderbilt at your place and with their pitching situation, that didn't, you know, that didn't, uh, I guess, upset me that Vanderbilt was <laughs> a little hamstrung because we know what they are like pitching and defense-wise. But a couple other notes offensively. One, we're really seeing now a completely healthy Wyatt Langford, who has battled a couple of different things throughout the regular season. But he combined his usual consistent on-base abilities with hitting for power over the weekend and started to run the bases a little bit more, uh, at least one if not two stolen bases during the series. So seeing him at full health was pretty scary for opponents. And then to speak to Scott Carter's um, – note about depth Josh Rivera was unable to play on Friday night he missed his first game of the year coming out of the concussion protocol so here comes Derek Fabian and all he does is take over at shortstop flawlessly in his first at bat in replacing Rivera on Friday night he hits a home run he had multiple doubles in this series his bat was so hot that Kevin O'Sullivan when Rivera returned for Saturday and Sunday just moved Fabian to third and he just kept the weekend going and again, the Gators played flawlessly on defense, even with that new addition. Uh, and that goes alongside the insertion with Tyler Shelnut now as the starting right fielder. So seemingly, 
you know, we talk about teams peaking at the right time or performing on all, you know, all levels. I wouldn't call this peaking at the right time, but it sure seems like the Gators have hit a stride here and it comes at a great time with now one weekend to go in the regular season. The marathon is coming to an end with a whole other season that lies ahead starting next week just outside of Birmingham, Alabama. How much work do we think the Gators have left to do? Because this is where you start thinking about, okay, you're positioning yourself for your seed. And yet they're going to Kentucky, which interesting note in Kentucky, they're ranked in the top 20. They're number one in RPI in the country. So it's obviously a challenging trip. And Florida's lingering right around like six or seven. So it would seem that there is still some work to do to safely feel like you're inside that top eight. Yeah, but maybe not that much because of what you just said. Kentucky is number one RPI. It is a road series for the Gators this weekend. The home road splits, by the way, this is conference-wide. The home road splits this year um, are – there's a chasm between the two. It, it's just another one of those years where it proves that it's so hard to win on the road in the Southeastern Conference, and the numbers bear that out. Um, so, uh, you know, don't go to Kentucky and get swept. That certainly – uh, raises a question mark with regard to the ability of getting a top eight seed. But I, I, I think the work is pretty much done because you swept Vanderbilt at home. I, I think the Gators are in good shape at this point. Uh, and, and Florida's RPI has risen as well. Um, if you look at the top six, I think, in the RPI, four of those teams are SEC teams. So yeah. um, I think I think the work is done, but I don't think that in any way the, the Gators are going to take their foot off the gas here, you know, heading for – you know, Hoover. And I don't think they're going to go to Hoover for the SEC tournament and say, well, you know, we've, we've done our work and, you know, we can just get out of here. I don't think that's the mindset of this team either. But, you know, if I'm just being objective and I'm, I'm looking at this, you know, from a resume standpoint, from the landscape, I think the Gators have done what they need to do to get that top eight seed with that sweep over Vanderbilt. I hope I'm right. We shall see. Certainly we'll be watching that closely as they wrap up the regular season and then head to Hoover. Uh, let's talk some softball. Normally this time of year, Chris, the Gators are, are posted up at home and they're ready for you know, a few weeks of uh, people coming to see them before they ultimately go to Oklahoma City. This is a very different year. It's been almost 20 years since the last time Florida did not host a regional. Um, and not only are they not hosting regional, they're going about as far as they possibly can to Stanford, where they've got to face one of the best pitching staffs in the country. It's a tall task, Chris, and what's been an, an, an odd year, I guess you could say, for Florida relative to, to what we're used to. Yeah, well, it's odd, like you said, just for the circumstance that they're not home. Yeah, going on two decades or whatever, but uh, um, heading out to Stanford uh, to play the number nine seed uh, Cardinal. And yeah, and yeah, I mean, they, uh, the the you, you mentioned the pitching staff. It's the it's the number ten pitching staff in the country, nation's leader in ERA. Um, Nigeria Canada with a zero point four nine ERA over ninety nine innings pitched. Wow. Um. So I mean, you know, af- after she gets by Skylar Wallace, you know, Gators have to do some stuff. Uh, I Skylar Wallace was named SEC Player of the Year last last week. Congratulations to her. She's just had a phenomenal season. I think we've said the last uh, couple. Uh, podcast we've talked that she has a really good chance uh when the season ends whenever that may be this weekend next weekend uh whenever that may be to have broken the single season uh batting average record so she's had she's had a great season now now she needs some help uh from some people behind her um Gators lost uh, their second game at the SEC tournament they beat Kentucky and then lost to a uh, eventual champion Tennessee four to nothing um Tennessee of course swept the Gators uh, a couple weeks earlier 
by scoring 30 runs in the three-game series. So, you know, Florida's uh, – the, the bats have to show up. Um, in terms of the pitching, it's funny because the, uh, a couple weeks ago in the in their last home game of the season, which is weird, the Gators played their last home game of the season on May 6th uh, hmm. against Florida State. It was a loss, a uh, high-scoring loss. I think it was the final score was 9-8. to eight. Um Tim Walton was after, asked after the game in terms of what he was going to do with the pitching. He goes, there's no plan. It is what it is. So he understands. Um, they just need to step up and play better. Um, it's going to be a hard task, obviously, going out to Palo Alto and getting something out of that. But um, in any kind of a elimination, whether it's single, obviously double elimination kind of format, which this will be, Florida will play uh, Loyola Marymount in the, in, in the first round. you got to win the first game because you don't want to put yourself in a uh, – elimination game uh, situation in the, in, uh, you know, in the second day you wake up. So if Florida can get by Loyola Marymount, they'll see Stanford's ace probably in a limit in a, in a second round winner's bracket game and just see what happens from there. Maybe Skylar Wallace and the teammates can, can get things going. Charlotte Eccles can uh, start hit, start hitting like she's used to hitting. And um, we'll see what happens. Florida plays very well in May. They're just not used to playing a regional this far away from home. Or, or away from home, period, actually. 3,000 miles is a long way to go for a, for a regional. Yeah. It, it begs the question, uh, is the word regional being used correctly? Um, but, you know, the way the way they do with the, with softball, and I think most sports, so I think the, the insiders call it uh, two buses and a, and a plane. So you got you go. Long Beach right. and Loyola Marymount, so there's two bus trips, and then one plane sends someone in that's uh, from, you know, a much different part of the country. Similar to what happened, actually, about 10 years ago, I want to say, when Florida had... UCLA sent to them uh, in a similar circumstance. So it will be interesting to see if they can keep their season going and would likely go if they were to come out of this would probably go to Durham to face uh, to face Duke. And that and that wouldn't be a terrible draw, actually. No, so, uh, just I mean, uh, you know, Duke Duke will have its strengths. Just like you know, you look at Stanford, a nine seed. At, 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 on the face of it, I, it didn't look that bad. You go out, you go out there and play there, which is not a really good hitting team. They only hit two eighty as a team. But they do have that ace, and what you need—if if you have that ace, you can roll it out for a for a couple wins. You're in you're you're in really good shape. And as we know, Florida doesn't have that ace that can carry it through a region. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. We talked last week about lacrosse entering the NCAA tournament. Chris, I know you covered that as well. Uh, and as has become kind of a unfortunately recurring theme for the Gators, uh, some heartbreak in the NCAA tournament. You're right. This has kind of been an ongoing thing the, the last couple of years is to is get to that round of 16. I haven't really been able to punch that ceiling per se, but I mean, gosh, it was, it was, they certainly put themselves in position. They were, they're down 15, 11, the defense wasn't playing very well down 15, 11 with about inside six minutes to go. And boom, 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 four straight goals from four different players. They tie the game with about a minute 20, I think it was minute 22 to go. And damn, if they didn't give up that, uh, that, that, that game decisive goal with 10.1 seconds left. And um, obviously the, a lot of tears on the field when the when when the when the when the clock ran out. But you know, Florida has another uh, another season where they won where they won their conference regular season title. Um, you know, lose to Notre Dame in crushing last second fashion. Uh, that's something you not easy not easy to take into the off season. And it was it was a da- it was a downer of a day. But uh, uh, it's just kind of been what this what the what, what this program has kind of dealt with the last couple years. Um, didn't get a chance to play play the big guns, whether it's James Madison or North Carolina or one of those uh, re- really good teams in the next round. But back to the drawing board for Omando O'Leary after they're done wiping the tears away from this one. 
Another team that saw its season come to an end in the NCAA tournament was women's tennis, who we talked about a little last week. Uh, Scott, what can you tell us about their exit and how that played out? Well, we knew they were going to face a big challenge up at a uh, number one seed, North Carolina, you know, to get to the uh, Elite Eight. And it started off well. They uh, The Gators took the doubles point and, you know, had the early lead. But once it turned to singles, uh, the Tar Heels kind of flexed their muscles and, you know, they swept the four singles uh, matches uh, to advance. And that ended Florida's season. And it was a season that just in talking to head coach Roland Thornquist last week, you could tell. He's very pleased with the way this team was playing at the end of the year and is really excited about some of the parts that are coming back, you know, with uh, like freshman Rachel Galis, uh, obviously kind of at the centerpiece of that. Um, I think, you know, they, they I don't know if they exceeded expectations, but I think they were more prepared uh, to go up to North Carolina and put up a fight than they were last year when it was the same matchup in the same spot in the tournament. And they really kind of went quietly into the night, but they put up a good fight this year and uh, finished eighteen and eight. Um, and now we'll see what they can do with some of the returning uh, players. I think of the nine players on the roster, six are underclassmen, so that that bodes well for next season. And uh, but yeah, the tennis season is over uh, with the men being knocked out the previous week, and now the women are done. So it's on to two thousand twenty four. Uh, in the tennis world. Moving on to our PAT, I was inspired by the news this week that Matt Ryan is heading into the broadcast booth, but somehow not retiring, despite working on Sundays every week when he would be playing. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I I think it's because he's trying to get some cash from the Colts. Um, No problem with that. Get all the money you're owed. Uh, but it started. It, it made me think about athletes turned broadcasters, uh, and I think that Matt Ryan will be a very good broadcaster. But there's a lot of former athletes that made quite bad broadcasters. So I'm curious, over your uh, your many years, who are some athletes who have been the worst broadcasters? Uh, and if you want a bonus point, maybe one that you thought would be great but ended up being quite terrible. You're right, Adam. Sometimes the the you know the athletes as as broadcasters, it's uh, been a common uh, career transition for decades now. Some work out better than others, but one that will always stick out in my mind as the worst is Eric Dickerson. <laughs> I still remember when he was on Monday Night Football, man. It was just some of the – I mean, I could have gone down there without looking at any notes and done a better job. Uh, he – I don't – I don't. I think when we talk about the worst – athletes to ever go into broadcasting i think eric dickerson has his own wing at the hall of fame <laughs> and everybody else is over here you know fighting to get in. to me eric dickerson uh is one and one a i mean he was just horrible why was he so bad i don't really I, it was a little early in my time i can't remember why he was so bad uh, he just i mean you could tell he didn't prepare he he just was uh, very unnatural at it and uh, it was kind of like watching uh, a college kid go out on his first assignment in the spotlight on Monday Night Football and trying to see if he can pass the the uh, audition. Uh, and, of course, his sports broadcasting career, to my knowledge, was it only that one year, guys? Scott took my guy. Because, <laughs> yes, it, it, he, he, he does have his own wing in the, in the Bad Broadcasting Hall of Fame. But it was hard to – he was just – he was nervous – he had no idea what he was talking about. 
and the camera's on him. And it was just, it was, it, it was so uncomfortable watching him try to, and it, he was doing sideline. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he wasn't in the booth. He was doing sideline. So it, it wasn't like he was talking the whole, talking the whole time. I mean, uh, so they, they, they actually didn't have him like having to, having to break down a, a particular play, but it wasn't good. It, 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 <laughs> no, it wasn't good by any stretch of the imagination. And this is a very subjective topic, obviously. Like, a lot of people in baseball, for instance, they didn't like Tim McCarver. I, I like Tim McCarver. I thought Tim McCarver was good. You know, I don't have a problem with up, that. You know, back in the days, the most hated broadcasters, he was always one of the guys who were on the list. Uh, but I liked him. And, um, you know, it, I'll, I'll be curious to hear Sean's take because, you know, Sean, you know, he's probably been told that he's the best thing ever and the worst thing ever all in the same day, I'm guessing. Right, Sean? Funny you should say that I got an email on Sunday <laughs> that I that I should follow more the lead of <laughs> Jeff and Steve and stop talking all the time. I was accused of having verbal diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> so some some dude took the time to find my Gators email. I guess it's probably easy to find on the website or whatever, and wrote me an email on Sunday. Just I mean trashing me i was like okay do y'all remember do y'all remember lisa guerrero yeah i remember her. I mean, yeah. she had she was she was put on sideline duty on monday night football and had a it was a debacle in fact i, I saw something um i mean she was interviewed like years later and said like like after she thought about killing herself that's how that's how that's how, that's how serious she was because i mean she was taken down early on i believe it was early on in in the social media thing it was just it was just so so bad he says you got to put these people in the in these positions uh, of you know and, and maybe maybe they're just they, first of all sideline reporting i mean just lends itself to bad moments to begin with do you yeah. agree with that sean <laughs> absolutely does, i do does does the coach ever want to do a sideline interview no and and <laughs> and if you end up trying to get joe nabeth you might find yourself in a bad spot too i <laughs> yeah it, it's interesting um Tony Saragusa would come to mind. I, hmm. I just never got on board with that approach. But, you know, I, I'm having a little bit of a mental block here, and, and I don't know why as to think about who would be a, the worst. But I will say this. I, I just know that there was a stretch not too long ago at ESPN where they were throwing so many former athletes up against the wall to see what would stick that they had to put each and every one of these pre- people's resume on the screen graphically so that, A, they could either lend some credibility to what they were saying or just simply to let you know who this person was, that the majority <laughs> of the sports viewing lexicon was unable to identify who this former athlete was and why they were now uh, serving as an analyst in the studio or on SportsCenter. So thankfully ESPN has gotten away from that, and we've gotten away from trying to throw anybody who ever wore pads or a uniform on the air. So – I, I think that I applaud now a lot of the, the players associations and a few of the other institutions of higher learning to actually have some broadcaster boot camps with some of these former athletes. And I think it's taken some that could potentially have been a train wreck and actually made them into someone who can serve the, the, the sports fan in a good way. I, there's, there's no doubt there's value in having those who played the game actually on the broadcast to talk about it. But uh, guys, I'm I'm really sorry I'm letting you down here. I'm having a kind of a mental block on an individual who just absolutely just fell flat on their face. 
was didn't Isaiah Thomas went through a rough stretch where he tried to be an announcer, I think. But he's also failed at being a commissioner of the CBA and a coach, college and pro, general manager. So Isaiah fails at a lot of things. So it's no surprise he failed at being an announcer, I guess. That's probably harsh. I was not a Pistons fan. But uh well he probably just got Monty Williams fired too, by the way, which is just absolutely insane. Yeah. Probably you're right. That was unfortunate, but um but yeah, this topic is uh, I like it because it's like Sean said, I think it's getting better, but over the years there have been some train wrecks. And I just I'll still say though, even if there had been a boot camp, Sean, for Eric Dickerson, I think he flunks the boot camp and still bombs. So it, that's my final word. Sean won't like this, but I, the most recent example of a high-profile guy who kind of belly flopped was Drew Brees. They just kind of threw Drew Brees out Ooh. there, and and they had to pull him back. Uh, and oh, then yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure that um, did NBC did they cut ties? I'm pretty sure they right didn't they drop him entirely? Uh, well, they yeah, they put Drew, him in the booth and they took him out of the booth. Right? Yeah, they put him in the or booth. They, put him they in pulled the studio, him out in the studio, rather. Right. I think they pulled him from every. It just, yeah, it just, yeah. it wasn't working. And it's, I think no. people just assume if you are a really successful player and you have a generally uh, genial personality, that it'll work. But again, I, I think it does a disservice to broadcasters to assume that literally anybody could do it because we have many examples that prove it is not the case. Yeah, no, Drew was uh, the disaster. Yeah, yeah, that didn't work. And I was surprised. Will Tom Brady ever be a, a Fox analyst? Because I'm not sure they'll let him do it if he's part owner of the Raiders, right? I don't see it happening. And he's also going to be bad at that because he just does not have enough charisma. I don't think he's ever going to call a game because then he, he signed the deal. Then he went back to play. And then he said he's going to take this year off to learn. And then I think it's gonna, I think that can's going to keep getting kicked. I don't think that's happening. And no, I think the public I, would better serve for it. I don't know. It's a... What was it, two hundred forty million dollars? I think it's like three hundred. I think it's three hundred fifty million dollars. Yeah, you're going to kick a three hundred fifty million dollar camp. Most people wouldn't, but it's Tom Brady, so who knows what? And he wants also, to do. on the opposite end of that spectrum, he's kind of going to have to go up against one of the best former athletes to turn announcers, Tony Romo, who I think most people love. See, some people love him. I'm kind of like middle of the road. I don't hate him. I don't love him, but it seems like he's been a big hit with the fans, right? Early on. Yeah, early on. Yeah. How about Gre- how about Greg Olson, Sean? Greg Olson's been very good. Yeah, it's interesting how many times though we find that the best ones are guys that maybe didn't have the highest profile career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly been the case. By the way, I guess I'll throw Magic Johnson on the pile. That that didn't really go real well. Not coaching yeah. either. Yeah, no, no. A lot of a lot of big names are on that big pile. Um, but hopefully Matt Ryan succeeds. Everyone in Atlanta still uh, still loves him despite the the lingering pain from the Super Bowl loss. But there's never pain when we get to talk to you guys as part of the roundtable. So thank you for being with us this week. As always, still things going on in Gator world. So we will keep talking about it. And I look forward to touching base next week. Thanks, guys. Given the plethora of incredible players to come through the program since Tim Walton arrived in 2006, it takes something really special to stand out. Skylar Wallace has done that and then some, smashing records left and right with reckless abandon. The National Player of the Year finalist is now hoping to lead the Gators down an unfamiliar path, as they'll have to become road warriors to return to Oklahoma City. We spoke to Wallace about her incredible year and what it means to be in the elite company that comes with being SEC Player of the Year. 
Yeah, so it had been a talk going on for quite a while. Um, and, you know, I didn't really want to get the noise to get to me and just wanted to keep playing ball. So I like, kept my uh, my eyes straight forward and kept my eyes on the prize of what, you know, what's really important is going to the World Series. But uh, obviously you can't ignore everything, especially when it's getting tagged on Instagram and Twitter and all that. But when I found out, I just I, – I didn't even know what to say. I mean, my teammates started hugging me. I just didn't think it really hit me until, honestly, we, when we got back from the SEC tournament. And um, – I was just laying in bed and just, it's really rewarding. I mean, after all the hours that I've put in and the extra work and staying late and doing all the extra stuff on off days and like just little things and not always softball related, but when you, when we reflect back on that, it just, it's rewarding to know that that pays off and you're not doing that for no reason. And even without the title, I mean, you're still not doing it for no reason. I think in making it into the postseason like we are now, it's, it's still huge and super rewarding in that case, but uh, it's a lot. And it was, it was, it's very honoring. I'm very, very honored to be SEC Player of the Year. So I think a lot of people have asked you that. I may be one of the first people to ask you this because it's pretty new, but earlier today, you were named a top three finalist for National Player of the Year. Um, yeah. I imagine a, a lot of the same feelings. But is there anything different about getting into that rarefied air? Because then you're talking about some of the greatest Gators ever that have been in that conversation. Yeah, I I think it's the same in certain aspects, but when you say player of the year and then SEC player of the year, uh, you're not limited to just the SEC. So to be a top three out of every player in the country is um, it's a pretty big deal. And it's a huge, it, again, it's a huge honor. I mean, if I would have told myself when I was little that I was going to be a top three finalist or SEC player of the year, I would have said you're crazy. But I mean, it's just, I, it puts a smile on my face. It's super rewarding and it's a huge honor to have my name name up there and be representing the Gators in that way. So you reflected on when you were little, if you had heard that, let's go back to when you were little. Can you tell us about yeah. where you grew up, your family, the early days when you, uh, when you got started? Yeah. So I grew up in the North Atlanta area, Woodstock area for the, the main part. I moved around a couple of times. Um, I went to Etowah high school and played there uh, all four years, played varsity. Um, so that's where that kind of got going with uh, playing travel ball and all that. And then, so I started playing travel ball, I mean, shoot, I was little, seven, eight, and started wow. playing travel ball. Um, my dad was my coach for the, the main, the first few years, and then uh, he had to give up that role. And I played with Patrick Lewis on the Georgia Impact um, and played with him since I was about, I would say, 10, 12-ish. I don't remember exactly. It's been, I'm getting too old for that. But uh, <laughs> around that age and then played with him all that. Ended up winning a PGF National Championship um, my last year before going to college. Um, but it really started when I was super little playing T-ball in Ballground, Georgia. Um, super small and a little area. and There's not much to do. Um, and just was throwing a ball around with my dad and stuff when I was going to my aunt's game, like when I was super young, shoot, I was in, I think that was Canton or Jasper. I was living then. I, I've moved a couple of times, like I said, but started throwing around and just kind of started, uh, really liking it. And next thing you know, my parents are signing me up and it took off from there. Hmm. So at what point while you were doing this checklist of tons of little towns in Georgia, um, at, at yeah. what point <laughs> there's a, there's a bunch <laughs> I've seen all these places on the highway signs. I haven't been to them, but I've seen them before. Mm -hmm. Um, at what point did you realize you could be really good at this? And this could be something that wasn't just a fun thing you did as a kid, but could, you know, help you get to college, take you to, to a career, that type of thing. Yeah, I don't think I really noticed or understood um, 
how good I was at the sport until college coaches started to come around. And, you know, they're saying, hey, like, we want to bring you on campus and we want to offer you a scholarship and we want you to come play at the one of the highest levels for for us. And uh, you're going to do it all, all four years while getting your school or while you're getting your education. Um, so that was around like 14, 13, 14, when those started coming in. And I mean, when some when you're at that age and someone's saying, hey, you can come to college for basically free get an education and play softball. I mean, that's, that was crazy to me. So I didn't understand till about that age. And then now um, going through, or I guess back then going through high school, I just, you know, I got offered to come try out for the USA team. I went down there my shoot, sophomore year. I want to say I went the first time tried out for them. And I mean, when that's a huge honor as a sophomore in high school to be yeah. playing on the USA team and trying out. So that kind of was eye-opening and then kind of going from there to, you know, having all the accolades at PGF and then going into my freshman year at college at Alabama. I mean, getting accolades from that, just realizing and growing as a player and seeing how, how good I was and the growth I could continue to do. So you had essentially two rounds recruiting out of high school. You ended up going to Alabama yep. and then, and then you made the decision to transfer to come to Florida. Can you talk about that second round why you wanted to make a move and why Florida was the right place for that move. Yeah. So obviously went to Alabama my freshman year, um, started there my freshman year, well, had a good season, um, went back after COVID and kind of just felt like that wasn't the place where I needed to be. And it needed to be a change for, for myself, not just as a softball, but academically and as a person. Um, so I went into the transfer portal and I got down to about three schools, which was OSU and Washington and then Florida, of course. Um, and I just really wanted to find a place that felt like home, somewhere that, you know, I could grow as a person and as a player. But more importantly, as a person, I got to the age where I kind of understood that, you know, softball wasn't my whole life. As much as I do enjoy softball, it's not my identity. Um, so I wanted to be somewhere where I can, you know, get a really good education that was going to take me somewhere and also just really enjoy life. Um, and then obviously grow that I had a good coaching staff and I was going to be able to grow and develop my, my skills on the field. Um, and so I had had a relationship with coach Walton from playing my, uh, on the junior team in 2019. And we were close, but you know, not too close because I obviously was still going to Alabama at the time. Um, and so I, I didn't want to go on a visit because I was really iffy. Um, I had been there, obviously, when I first got recruited the first round. But I was really iffy because I didn't know if I wanted to sit out. And mm -hmm. uh, so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go to OSU. I haven't visited there. So I went out there into Washington and visited. Something just I, – I liked it, but something wasn't clicking for me. Um, so I kept praying about it and praying about it and talking to my family. And they're like, hey, like, this is your decision. Like, this is nothing to do. Like, we'll support you no matter what. And I'm like, okay, well, that – you know, that doesn't help. Like, that's not helping me. <laughs> and, and so – I kept praying about it and praying about it. And uh, my mom's mom had passed away about 2010. Mm -hmm. So I was 10 or 11 years old. Um, and I was asleep one night and she came into my dream. And uh, she was like sitting in my room. And it was, this is so weird. But she was sitting in my room and she said that Florida was the place I needed to go. And that's where I was going to grow. Wow. And the next day I called my parents and I said, hey, really had this dream. I don't know what to do about it. Um, but you know, Gigi was telling me I need to go there. And they're like, well, how do you feel about it? And I said, you know what, as much as it's going to suck to sit out probably, and I'm not going to get that eligibility, I think it's all going to work out. Um, and they're like, well, go for it. And I'm like, ah, I need to think about it. Thought about it for, I don't even know, 
five hours. And I was like, okay, well, let's tell, let's call coach Walton and tell him I'm committing. Um, so I called him, obviously told, uh, Julia Cottrell, I had played travel ball with her, her and Riley Trilishek. So I told them I was coming and then I was super close with Hannah, uh, Hannah Adams and Charlotte Eccles. And so I told them I was coming and I was like, Hey, I'm about to get on a call with coach Wall. And like, I hope y'all are ready for me to be your teammate again. Um, so that was super exciting and haven't looked back since it's been one of the greatest choices I've ever made. The amount of growth I've had as a person and as a player is uh, unreal. What I take away from that is I need to have more profound dreams because I just have weird dreams that don't make sense. They don't help me make I any life I have never decisions. had a dream like that in my <laughs> life, but I will never forget that. It felt, yeah. it, I just remember how real it felt that she was like there in the room with me. And I, it, it's so creepy to think about because I'm like, wait, that's just like, that doesn't happen to a lot of people, <laughs> but I can't, I can't describe it. Honestly, it's just super, super weird and unreal. Um, so in terms of your, your transformation and how you changed as a player, one thing that's notable from looking at your Alabama numbers to your Florida numbers, you hit a lot more home runs. So I'm, I'm curious, yeah. <laughs> was it, was it changes you made during that year off? Like how did you become the power hitter you are today? And what role did that year off play in changing what you could be on the field? So I think it started with just being, um, you know, obviously with the first year I wasn't able to play any games. I was doing everything that other other players, weightlifting, training, practicing, all of that, but I didn't get to put the uniform on and play in between the white lines when it came down to it. Um, but I was I was super competitive in practice. You know, I, I was running bases for them. I was hitting. I was trying to hit gap shots. I was trying to hit home runs. I was trying to do bunts. I was trying to do that. So growing that and just developing that each day at practice really led into the last season we had. Um, and I was really just, you know, trying to find a way to get on base last year. And it worked out well for me. You know, I, I did, I had good numbers. I did had a great year. I, I'm not disappointed at all. Um, but I came back in the fall and I, I told Coach Wallen I could do more. Um, and he told me I could do more. And I could, you know, really grow into a power hitter. But I just had to change my mentality from that. And so we really talked about that in the fall and continued or worked on it and kept working on it and all of that. And Really, just the main difference was just really see, really focusing on what I was good at. I think that was important, and just being super consistent with what I was doing. I don't think, you know, if I had a bad day, I didn't need to go tweak this one thing, or I needed to change my swing this way or that way. It was just, you had a bad day, it is what it is, move on, tomorrow's a new day, focus on what you've been focusing on. And just being super consistent on what I was trying to do. I think that's like the biggest difference beside my, uh, my mentality going to the plate um, was just, you know, really doing what I was good at and sticking to that. So you've had this incredible year. And then across the street, Jack Caglione has had a similarly incredible year. Both of you, you could both be national <laughs> yeah. player of the year, literally with locker rooms across the street. Um, I, I read a story about it where you guys have, have sort of connected about that. Uh, what What is mm -hmm. this? Is this a friendly rivalry? Is this like, I'm going to hit one this weekend. You got to hit two. Like how, how is this? Uh, how has this grown? How is it playing out in real time? Yeah, I mean, we see each other in the weight room, and I think it's cool to see, you know, the growth that he's had, especially after he had a uh, Tommy John surgery last year and wasn't able to play. Um, but I, it's very friendly comp uh, competition. I mean, he's definitely blown me out of the water. I think he's up to like 27 home runs now. Um, I'm only at 19, so I got some ways to catch up with. But it's awesome to see the, the growth that he's had and just the season he's having. It's, I mean, it's truly amazing. I mean, we were in the weight room last, I guess, Tuesday – or something working out. And he's like, Hey, congratulations on SEC player of the year. Like I, I'm going to do the same thing. And I'm like, heck yeah, you are. I'm like, go, go get it. It's yours. 
so it's it's cool to see us having the years that we're having just you know can continue to grow from here Hmm. you said earlier that softball is a big part of what you do but it's not everything so what is beyond softball for you how do how do you define yourself off the field what do you like to do what what piques your interest yeah so i'm really into fitness i like to work out um and uh whether that's pilates or some type of running i'm trying to get back into running i really enjoy that um or just strength training, whatever it is, that's a passion of mine. I also like to shop. <laughs> I really like to shop, even even though I don't like to spend my own money. That's that's the key right there. It's a real challenge to do that. <laughs> it is. It is. And my parents are, you know, starting to pick up on my little my yeah. little lies I tell them um, <laughs> to get them to pay for things. But um, I really like to hang out with friends and I like to travel a lot. Um, so if I can travel, that's the case. But living within living in Florida, I like to go to the beach and just hang out by the water and be outside. I'm big outside uh, girl. I've always been outside my whole life, especially you know playing softball. Obviously, always out in the sun or something. So mm-hmm. that's what I like to do on my free time. Um, trying to get back into reading, and you know, I like to read up on new things that are like beneficial, whether it's invest investing or financial stuff, something like that. I like to read up on that and try to gain more knowledge on things like that. But yeah, that's what I like to do. What are your favorite places that you traveled to and what places are on your bucket list? Ooh, favorite places I've traveled to would, um, we went to Ireland when we were on the 2019 team. Um, that was a really cool area. I definitely want to go back cause we were only there for like less, like less than 24 hours, but it was beautiful when we were driving around. So I really want to go back and explore that. But um, I would say I've been to St. Martin, and that was really pretty. Um, and I went to Germany when I was four. And I have little moments of that. And it You can was remember beautiful. from when you were four? You can remember anything? From yeah, that? I remember wow. we were taking this. You know, now, I don't remember the city. My mom and dad would be able to tell you the city. Um, but we were on this tour bus. And it's like the one that has like the little connecting thing in the, yeah, in the middle yeah. of it. Yeah, and you're going up this mountain that literally has a road carved, carved out with snow, and you're there's nothing on the side, and you're just going up that in a bus, and you end up turning all the way up to the top. And I mean, it, it was I remember freaking out and being like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I literally see like the edge of the snow, like we're about to go off. Um, and we got to the top, and there was all these sleds, and we night sledded down the mountain. Wow. And I remember I was riding with my dad, and he is ruthless and reckless on this thing. And I am freaking out, and we almost went off because he was driving crazy, but we didn't, obviously. I would not be here, but <laughs> uh, we got to the bottom, and it was it was the coolest thing I've probably ever done until this day. Um, definitely need to go back and do that. But those are probably my two favorite places I've been to. A bucket list, obviously, is Bora Bora. Really want to go there, but I want to go to Thailand, too. I think Thailand would be a really cool area to go explore. And I really just want to do like a backpacking trip to Europe. I think mm. going back and exploring that would be really cool. My friends honeymooned in Thailand and said you can get a massage like all day for like three or four dollars. So for that reason yeah. alone, I need to figure out a way to make it happen. Yes, you. The amount of things you can do in Thailand, from what I've seen, and like the prices of it is ridiculous. <laughs> They're just giving like, stuff away. 
yeah, there is nothing like America. I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was speaking of travel. We're talking right now. You're you're in a hotel. You're in Palo Alto, getting ready yeah. for regionals. Um, this is a very different situation for the Gators to be in. It's the first time the Gators have gone on the road in regionals in almost twenty years. So it's obviously not the norm. So I'm curious how how are you approaching this? How is how is Coach Walton approaching this? Because it is new. What's what's the outlook? What's the approach? I think, you know, we had practice today and we stood there and had a conversation as a team. And I think it's just something exciting. Like, it, we why not be the first team who's been on the road and won out of a regional? Why not, you know, enjoy the time that we have? Something, it's something different. We're not playing at home. We don't have the crowd. And why not just take it in and enjoy it? And I think that's all you can do right now. Um, you know, you can't make the moments bigger. We talked about that. You can't make the moments bigger than what they are. Um, obviously, it's a big moment, but just play loose and play play free. I mean, it's the same game and, you know, nothing really matters now. Either you win or you, you don't, and that's all you can do. So why not just play a game every day as hard as you can and just let it be what it is. Um, if we can do the little things. I think we're going to be okay. And I, I, uh, I mean, watching us at practice, boy, we were electric. We had a, our bats were going, we were communicating, we're talking, we're all fired up and ready to play. So we're, we're really excited to be, you know, hopefully the one of the first teams to be on the road and make it out of the regional here in Stanford. Final question for you. I know that before practice, you had a chance to see some of San Francisco. You hit the sites. Yes. What were what were your favorite sites on your uh, your touristy San Francisco visit today? Yeah. So our first stop, we went to the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. I have never seen that except over pictures. So that was pretty cool to see in person. It was a little foggy, so you couldn't see it all the yeah. way, but you still got it's the usually, gist of it. It's usually pretty foggy. I think it's almost always yeah. somewhat foggy. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we still got a picture. We still had, had fun. Um, obviously the coffee place there was a huge hit for all of us. So we all got the coffee and it was really good coffee actually. Um, and then we went to pier 39 and got to see the sea lions, um, which was They're cool, awesome. which was really cool. I mean, you, it was, I, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, and then a boat came up and like the way they were looking, we were all like cracking up. Cause it was just like, they were like, the heck are y'all doing over here? But I mean, it was just cool to get out and about and see something that, you know, a lot of us probably will never get the chance to see again really or haven't seen if we you know by being here but it was cool to get out and do that but it was then great time for practice and we came up to i think we practiced at west valley college which is a really nice facility actually and really nice area so we got to drive around and see some of the houses and stuff like that and then obviously went and explored for dinner and stuff on our own into the area but very nice very different than than florida but uh we're making it and we're surviving and we're enjoying it as as much as we can another check off on the bucket list that's at places you don't places you've traveled you don't need to go back to you got it on the list uh, yeah i've seen the golden gate bridge <laughs> i don't really see the point of coming back to that's san right. francisco you did it. completely honest <laughs> you did it you did it um well scott we know that there's a lot of demands in retirement now a lot of people want to talk to you so really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us today you as well take care and that's going to do it for this week's show If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting floridagators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.